Hello everyone and welcome to this Ruby live event. My name is Ken Rubin, Chief Culinary Officer here at Ruby. You can see we are in a slightly different location than usual. And uh, also I haven't done a live event in I think over a year. So really happy to be here today. We are uh, shooting actually from a studio today. We have some of the Ruby team members uh, with us to shoot for two different partner projects that we will uh, keep a little bit secret but probably announce later in the fall so we're really excited to have two new partner programs uh, going live this fall both focused on uh, cooking for health and food is medicine type programming so uh, should be of interest to many people within our ruby community uh, so we have here in the background you'll see uh, chef dan merrick and chef eric weinkoop chef eric uh, aaron zerahun uh, daniela and of course, uh, Patrick, our producer, is here with me live. Uh, and I've done a few hundred of these live events with Patrick in a remote studio where I'm sitting in Portland, Oregon. Patrick is uh, in Vancouver, BC, Canada. And this is the very first time in Ruby history we've had an event live with Patrick in studio. So really, really happy to be here uh, in person with him today. Uh, so you'll see in the background a little bit of action, a little bit of activity. We are live shooting today, so the cameras will be on and off. You'll see some lights probably moving uh, and some people moving in the background. But we're going to have a uh, ask me anything, uh, ask a chef any question you have today. So um, anything that you have in mind that relates to uh, food and cooking, culinary technique, um, anything along those lines, you'll have an opportunity today. If it's something I can't answer or don't have a good answer, uh, we might have you uh, connect directly with someone on our team or someone within our support uh, department to uh, better address your question. Uh, but it looks like I'm just going to jump in here and just get started. Um, first question is from Chef Char, um, who obviously usually is one of the starring uh, chefs on these live events. So I just want to first thank her for her incredible contributions and all the work that she's done to support students um, in the last number of years through this live event venue. So thank you, Char. Um, so she asked, if I were a fly in your kitchen after a very, very busy day at work, what would be your quick, easy plant-based dinner to put together and serve in under 30 minutes? Uh, also, do you batch cook? Um, thanks, Ken. So my, my solution to under 30 minutes, Char does come down to batch cooking where I'm typically gonna have some number of things already kind of prepared or semi-prepared, whether it's some beans that have already been simmered um, or some, you know, some whole grains I might have already prepared or even some like vegetables I roasted the day before and then maybe marinated or just have cold that I can use as a topper. But let's just say in this example, I have not batch cooked anything, right? I'm just, it's 6.30, my kids are coming home, they're hungry. Um, I don't have a lot of time, I've got 30 minutes. So what I'll typically do is just my standard go-to dish, which I'll actually make also if I'm not really in a time crunch, just because I love it so much. Uh, we actually had a variation of this dish uh, for lunch here on set with the Ruby team. Uh, but my go-to is really just a vegetable lentil stew. Uh, I make a lot of this. Um, I love red lentils, I love all lentils, but red lentils tend to cook fairly quickly and create just beautiful texture and richness within a dish. So for me, it's, I'll get my Instapot out, I'll take a, a large onion, 
um, whatever other vegetables I have, whether it's some bell peppers or some, some other things like that, maybe some garlic, I'll put them in the pan with some oil if I want or without oil if I want to do a dry no oil saute. Put in some red lentils, maybe a cup and a half or so of red lentils, um, and then top it with some veggie stock or some water. Put it in there. Um, within about eight minutes, I'll have you know nice soft lentils. Um, if I'm in a hurry, I can release that steam out of the Instapot. If I'm not so much in a hurry, I'll just let it go more natural. But essentially, I just want to cook those lentils until they're nice and soft and even a little bit broken apart. And then once I get that lid off and it's depressurized and it's safe to do that, um, what I'll do is I'll stir in some other green vegetables. So I'll finally chop some green beans out of the garden. I'll put in some kale or some spinach, some freshly cut tomatoes, all those vegetables that really I only want to simmer or cook for just a few minutes just to brighten them up. I'm still wanting them to have some texture. Um, and I'll typically serve that with something like my mom's whole wheat pita bread. So very typical. I've got about <laughs> two dozen pita breads here that she made for the cast and crew here this week. Uh, but my mom is an amazing cook and she keeps our house really well stocked with these amazing uh, whole wheat pita breads that she makes um, pretty much every week. So we'll always have them in the freezer or we'll have fresh ones. And for me, honestly, Shard, like that's a go-to meal I have at least once a week, some kind of a lentil dish with whatever vegetables I have, some cooked with the lentils, some added in closer to the end, um, typically lots of fresh herbs. So it depends, you know, where I'm going with the dish. I could add some cumin and some mustard seed or some madras curry. I can also add like morita or chipotle pepper and cumin and some extra garlic and kind of take it to Mexico. Um, but really for me, it's just about having like comfort, warm stew, and then that scoop of some uh, whole wheat pita bread. Uh, super easy, super comfortable uh, for everyone to eat. Also, great leftovers, no problem heating it up the next day, putting it over some, some brown rice or something else like that. So that's a pretty standard thing for me, I'll, I'll say. Uh, hi, Chef Ken. Um, I tried two recipes from the new Esselstyn cookbook. The final result did not stick together. Would adding a flax meal, uh, water mix, egg substitute hold the recipe together? Um, you know, I'd, I'd have to know more, I guess, about the recipe that you were trying to cook more specifically. Um, but typically, if you're looking something, if you're looking for something that needs a binder, um, if you want to make like a flax egg. Uh, gel, that's something that you can do. You might need to really maybe up the amount of flax um, in that egg substitute gel if it's not binding enough. But otherwise, I think to help you, I'd have to know just a little bit more about what specific recipes and like maybe a little bit more about your process and what, what didn't work for you. Uh, next question here from Nancy. I'd love to learn more about turning my cooking into a business. Will Ruby ever consider offering a course on this. I make chocolates right now as a hobby. Could I get some feedback uh, on them from someone like yourself? Can I uh, send you some? Uh, well, thank you, Nancy. Um, absolutely, the idea of um, you know turning your passion around cooking into a business is something that we talk a lot about at Ruby. Um, Chef Aaron, who's here on set today, has a real personal passion around entrepreneurship 
and business development, innovation, and small business. And she herself has dabbled in a number of different food-related type businesses. So she's, she's a great person on our team who I think brings a lot of energy to that. Otherwise, a lot of us on the team, you know, love the idea of using that passion that you have for 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 chocolate or for a plant-based sauce or a salsa company or a baked product company, whatever it might be, turning that into um, something that's you know more than just a hobby. Whether that's a full-blown business, whether that's a pop-up that you do weekly or monthly or something you do maybe with your church or your community center or with your school PTA. Um, there's a lot of different ways to kind of leverage that that passion. Um, right now, we're actually looking at um, trying to figure out, well, what, what things can we do on Ruby from a entrepreneurial business point of view that we could maybe deploy to help our students? So we'd love to hear more from you, Nancy, if there's specific things that you'd like to see in a course about food business development, uh, we'd be all ears and very interested in, in your feedback. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, Linda has a question here about um, making low-fat coconut milk. Um, so in a previous session, Char suggested making your own low-fat coconut milk from homemade oat milk plus coconut extract. Uh, on Amazon, there are coconut essences and coconut extracts. Are these the same? How much do you use per 100 milliliters of milk? Um, so 100 milliliters of milk is a pretty small quantity, just a few uh, uh, liquid ounces for those who don't use uh, milliliters. Um, uh, so you know, a cup of milk, let's call it, would be probably about double that volume. Um, my suggestion would be, you know, really following the manufacturer's instructions in terms of potency. Um, I've never worked with a coconut essence. I've worked with coconut extracts whether they're alcohol-based or glycerin-based, um, they're typically really, really strong. So you'd measure them in droppers, not in any other sort of, uh, you know, milliliters or things like that. So my, my suggestion would be, you know, buy a good coconut extract from just an otherwise reputable brand that is making quality extracts. Um, you know, look for something that has a lot of reviews, even something that if you were to go say to like a natural foods market or something like that, you might find some, some options. But from a flavor perspective, my recommendation would really be to, you know, start with your 100 milliliters uh, or whatever product you wanna actually use it in. Um, and then just start with like one or two drops, stir it in, uh, give it a sniff, see what the kind of olfactory and the, what the smell feels like for you, if it is giving off that coconutty aroma, and then give it a taste and see if that aroma carries through that, that flavor sensory uh, stimulation. Um, if you feel like, wow, that did it, perfect. You know that it's the one or two drops. That's probably gonna be your right ratio. If you need to add a few more, I would just go with that and see kind of where your coconutty flavor threshold is, right? So part of this is what are you using it in? How much should the coconut come through? How prevalent do you want that coconut, et cetera, et cetera. It's a, it's a pretty pronounced flavor once you kind of get into it. So I would say, you know, start with less. It's always easy to add more. Can't take it out once you put it in. But I would let your mouth help you decide 
and your you know your senses help you decide what you think the appropriate amount is but it's probably measured in, in drops in this scenario with your 100 milliliters uh, great question though uh, and I did go back and watch that question with Patrick uh, just from the previous event just to get a sense of what uh, that project was with Char. So I appreciate that approach to still maintain that flavor without the heavy um, saturated fat load that the coconut milk would otherwise contain. Uh, next question here from Linda. I need to buy a 10 inch fry pan for no oil frying. I have a very limited budget, about 40 pounds. Um, and the range is huge. Should I, uh, should the description say stainless steel, nonstick? Does nonstick mean coated, some aluminum and stainless steel? You spent hours on the web. Yeah, there are a lot of different pans out there, Linda. Um, you know, my recommendation is for people who are committing to cooking and especially committing to cook, you know, cooking no oil or forks over knives style, um, having a good pan it's just a really, really good investment. And I think you can get there within your budget. Um, the, the key is, for my recommendation, um, and different you know, chefs might tell you different things, I prefer to use non-stick, which means non-coated pans. Um, not that I never use non-stick, but for this application, I think that non-stick is the best thing to use. It's gonna give you the best results in terms of caramelization and color development. It's going to give you the best results in terms of deglazing a pan and having just non-reactive, no fuss, easy cleanup type situations when you're using a pan for no oil sauteing where you can really develop a lot of color and a lot of sugars can caramelize in that pan from your onions and whatnot. Um, so, you know, having the interior be stainless for me is an important uh, part. Now, for the overall pan construction, some pans are just stainless steel, fantastic. Um, those are gonna be a little bit heavier. Those will be uh, induction ready, meaning you can put it onto an induction cooktop, uh, which is more and more common these days. Um, but it might be more expensive. So there are some pans that recommend, uh, you know, for just cost you know, savings, they'll recommend like an aluminum exterior, which is great for Conductivity does not work on induction, but conductivity on a standard electric stove or standard gas uh, uh, you know, range uh, works great. Um, you just wanna make sure that the quality of the build is really good because you don't want those two metals, <laughs> you know, the stainless steel interior and the aluminum exterior that need to be really sandwiched together. You don't want those to be at all degraded over time. And again, probably not an issue, but just make sure in that scenario it's a high quality, a high quality pan. My my biggest recommendation is you know buy the best pan you can, even if it means buying it used. Uh, and I buy some things online. Sometimes you can find at a Goodwill or um, there's websites for you know buying and selling things. There's even like free websites uh, for people who are just giving things away. Um, but it might be one of those things you just keep your eye out for because having that pan is gonna be one of the most important tools in your kitchen. And if I had to spend an extra little bit of money on that pan and a little bit less on something else, that pan is almost like an investment you're making. It's gonna make all your cooking, all your food better 
um, over time for many, many years. I have pans that I've been using now for 25 or 30 years. So that's the way I kind of run the calculus is if you can extend that budget up, fantastic. If you can find it used, fantastic. Otherwise, I still think you can probably find some pans in particular on sale within that budget. Um, I know that the brand Cuisinart, at least in North America, will oftentimes have um, great sales. So like during the holiday season in November, December, sometimes you can get like a really nice Cuisinart pan for probably right in your price range, probably like, uh, you know, $50 US or maybe 40 pounds thereabouts, but somewhere in that price range is probably not, not too far off. Um, again, I would stay away from aluminum pans on the interior, and I would stay away from nonstick in this particular uh, application. Uh, another Linda has another question here uh, about onion size. So hello, chef. I'm having, uh, having cut up many an onion for the variety of tasks and forks over knives. I'm wondering how you would describe a large, medium, small onion size-wise. Uh, are there times that I felt like too much onion in a dish for my preparation according to recipes? So really good question. I mean, this applies to really all vegetables, right? We say things like one cucumber, one onion, one head of lettuce. And because these things are, um, you know, from nature and have to do with the variety and where they're grown and how they're grown, they can really uh, vary greatly in size. Um, so, you know, this is why recipe writing is a bit of an art and a science, because you're trying to be precise, but you're also trying to understand kind of the reality, the lived experience of regular people who, when they go to the store, if they know they have to buy an onion and use an onion in a recipe, that's easier for them to think of, well, how much onion is a cup of chopped onion, right? Like you might not make that association. Um, but to answer your question, when you think about onions and of course, there's more than just three sizes, but let's just say for the sake of the conversation, we'll characterize them by like large onions, medium and small. My overall kind of disposition would be that the small onion is gonna be uh, by weight, maybe four or five ounces, certainly not more than, than that. Um, your medium onion might be double that, so maybe it's eight ounces. And then your large onion might be double that again. Maybe it's a pound or 13 ounces or 19 ounces, somewhere in that. Again, all using US uh, weight measures. Um, if we're talking about a 16 ounce onion, we're talking about a, you know 450 grams, give or take, of, uh, of, uh, of weight. So that, of course, translates to different amounts of volume. So if your recipe is calling for a cup of finely diced onion, that will be more weight than a cup of coarsely chopped onion, just by volume, because you're gonna have in the coarsely chopped onion a lot more air gaps and space in between the onion, and you'll have less onion per volume. Um, but I also find that just sometimes you go to the supermarket and those are, if you buy onions individually, those are pretty big onions usually. Um, to buy small onions, I really only see those when you buy like a bag of onions, you buy like a bulk two, three pound, you know, pound four bag where it's in that mesh sack. And that's, that's kind of where I see the smaller onions in that four ounce or so weight, weight size. Um, good thing about the onions is like, if you just feel like there's too many, what you could do is 
just you know caramelize them, put them away, use them on some other thing. You can always add them to another recipe. If they've already been cut up and you don't really have anything to do with it, you can put them in a Ziploc bag or put them in a container, pop them in the freezer. If you need to, it gets dropped into a veggie stock that you're making or you pop it into a pan that you're using to start some soup or I would add it to my lentil dish that I described earlier. Nothing's gonna happen with those onions. Just know that after you chop them up, you wanna either freeze them or use them pretty quickly because they're not gonna last in your fridge that well. They're also gonna smell, right? So taking care of those more quickly is gonna be a good, a good idea. Uh, Janine has a question. If someone is eating plant-based purely for health reasons and profoundly misses meat and dairy, what is the best way to choose plant-based recipes uh, to satisfy this? Um, you know, gosh, we get questions like this a lot because people uh, you start eating plant-based for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's because of um, environmental Sometimes it's related to um, people's relationships to, to animals and you know, the ethics of killing and eating animals. Uh, for many people, it's just a straight health decision. Their doctor or their healthcare practitioner says, you know, gosh, here's some things that we're concerned about. We know that if you change your diet, you wouldn't have maybe some of these symptoms or some of these conditions. Um, so for those individuals, I think you know, you still maybe have a desire, a wish, a craving for some of those foods because they represent your childhood, positive memories. You just like the aesthetics of it, right? You like the texture, you like the flavor, the richness. All that is totally, I think, fair game. Um, so when it comes to like, how do you build meals that are really satisfying? I think it's about really building that kind of base of what are those two, three, four, five recipes that you develop, you know, for your own palate, your own flavor, that has big, bold flavor. It has enough um, of a caloric density or a mass or a weight, so maybe you feel more full or more satisfied. Um, even from a textural point of view, you know, finding those foods, if you wanna have a certain chew or a bite or texture, so for me, um, I love that texture of like mushrooms or like seitan with mushrooms where you do get some of that um, quote meaty type texture um, and those are all very satisfying. I would say beyond that just really build flavor. So all those techniques that um, are good for developing umami and developing a range of flavors in food whether that's roasting or dry sauteing or grilling uh, broiling, things that add coloration, caramelization, crispiness on the exterior, texture, things that concentrate flavors tend to be really, really satisfying in that way. Um, and then look at all those things that create umami, right? So whether it's different types of ferments, things like miso, uh, koji-based ferments that might be in you know other categories outside of kind of the miso-soy family, uh, lots of different types of sauces um, to dress things up. These are all things that I think are gonna help with some of that, that richness. Um, I also know for some people, it just means having to feel full and to feel that kind of energy. 
Uh, again, because of their need to have a larger caloric base potentially, it might be that you have an extra you have an extra meal or you have an extra large snack because when you're eating a lot of plants, you're just not getting that caloric hit that you would if you had a meal full of meat or dairy or other sorts of things. In most cases, absent you know having a lot of nuts and seeds and things like that. Um, but you know, really, if you can if you can find a few recipes you know, a good hearty chili or a stew, a good filling for an enchilada or a taco or a ravioli or a sandwich filling um, that gives you that feeling that you're looking for, that creates that sense of satisfaction, that's going to be really, really key. Um, you know, some of the things around dairy I find also really interesting. Um, I don't do a lot of dairy in any regard, but for me, when I do... Um, say like a flatbread with some really thick uh, cultured cashew cream that goes under the broiler so it gets kind of oozy and a little bit bubbly and a little bit browned. Like it doesn't take a lot of that to be really, really satisfied with that like hit of mouthfeel and that kind of fattiness from that, that kind of a product. So some of those little tricks can really, really help. Um, sorry if I'm off, off subject. I've been wondering since Forks Over Knives promotes no oil cooking, and food. What about fish oil supplements? So, um, you know, in the Forks Over Knives philosophy, it's not only uh, no added oil, but it's also no animal products. So it's a completely plant-based uh, vegan approach within the Forks Over Knives philosophy. So that would, um, you know, eliminate fish oil from being a, a possible supplement. Now, for people who are looking for um, omega-3 fatty acids or DHA supplements and things like that, there are plant-based versions of those products if that's what you're looking for, and certainly something that you um, could talk to your healthcare professional about um, if you're trying to re you know, replace some of the beneficial um, essential fatty acids typically found in fish if you're trying to still maintain that within a whole food plant-based diet. Uh, next question from Sandra. With a diagnosis of osteoporosis, what is the best vegan or whole food plant-based diet recommendation? Should it include vitamin or mineral supplements? Um, Sandra, I'm, I'm going to ask you to talk to your, your healthcare practitioner. I don't know what um, exactly you know your diagnosis is or what your course of care might be, but in terms of um, you know making sure you have all the right micronutrients and that you're getting the right balance. I would certainly talk to your healthcare practitioner. Uh, she or he can certainly point you in the right direction in terms of what your requirements might be, what supplementation they might recommend, again, given your, your particular um, health situation. Uh, great question though. Uh, next question here from Stacy. I've been trying to get a sourdough starter going for two weeks. Uh, the ratio I've been using is 14 grams of starter, 60 grams of water, 60 grams of flour. It's nice and bubbly, smells right, but does not double in size after it is fed. Is my ratio off? Um, you know, Stacy, I don't think so. Your ratio sounds really good. Um, sometimes uh, what we see with some of these sourdough starters, and about 50-50 is pretty spot on for most cases. Um, you know, sometimes you just feel like it might be a little bit loose and if it's too loose, in other words, too hydrated, not enough flour, a little bit too much water, you'll find that it can bubble up and bubble up and bubble up, but then it kind of collapses on itself because it's creating so much air 
without the the opportunity for that flower to create some structure, right, to lift up. And sometimes it just won't completely double. Maybe it'll go up by a certain percentage, but it won't double in size. And I would say that's actually not a problem. As long as it's working and creating that good ferment and you and you have that happening, you're probably good. It just means you have to just maybe have a little bit more time or maybe that needs a little bit more oomph. Uh, it could be that you want to just let it sit on your counter and kind of activate a little bit harder on the first round. In other words, a little bit more time, a little bit more warmth before you put it in a fridge to let it kind of um, maybe do its thing uh, more over time. It really depends on what your practice, what your what your protocol is. But if you're if you're worried about the doubling part, you might just increase your flower just a touch and see if that helps with your structure within um, that sourdough starter. But it's all, it's all fun stuff. And as long as it's bubbly and smells right, you're off to the right start for sure. When roasting vegetables, is there a rule of thumb for choosing a glass dish or metal roasting pan? Uh, so Eugenie, I, I typically use a, 90% uh, of the time, I use a, a metal roasting pan, standard uh, kitchen half sheet pan with either a sill pat or a piece of parchment paper. Um, that's just the habit that I have. It's fast, it's easy cleanup. Um, in a commercial kitchen, being a professional chef, I just got used to not really having a lot of glass around because it tends to be a hazard for cookware. Um, I also find that the metal roasting pan heats up really quickly, transfers heat really well. They're light, they're inexpensive. I have about a half dozen of them that I use on rotation. Um, and most of the time with what I'm roasting, I can reuse that piece of parchment paper. If I'm, if I'm roasting without oil or without any strong ingredients, it's just some broccoli on a pan or with some onions, I'm not even gonna wash that piece of parchment. I'll just use it again the next day because I'm not worried about anything foodborne uh, coming out of that in a 400 degree oven with some veggies. Um, glass dish is fine if that's what you have. Um, you might have a little bit more, uh, you know, if there's some cleanup on it or whatever, but that's perfectly fine. I would just say the most important thing for roasting veggies is, you know, don't crowd the pan, um, get the pan or get the oven nice and hot. And if you have a convection option, use convection because <laughs> that's going to help with air circulation. It'll help with even heat distribution. It'll help having all the crispiness and exterior texture uh, to your liking. Uh, next question here from Terry. How do I keep the inside of stainless steel shiny and beautiful the way it was when my mom used it for years? Um, well, gosh, I, um, I, I'm not sure what your mom did to keep her stainless steel so shiny. Um, there are products out there that you can use um, you know, to clean the inside of your pan to make it nice and shiny looking. Um, there's a, a product called Barkeeper's Friend, I believe it, what is what it's called, that I've used in the past that will work if you are really looking to take some interior stainings or surface stainings off the pan. Um, but, you know, otherwise I would say if it doesn't really bother you, don't sweat it. Like, I'm, I use my pans to cook if they have a little bit of disc discoloration here and there doesn't personally bother me, but if you want to keep them in tip-top shape, I would recommend getting one of those um, 
you know, one of those products you can take a scouring pad to and just kind of clean it up. Uh, that works really well. You'll notice if you're doing a lot of forks over knife style cooking, no oil cooking, or even just a lot of sauteing, even with oil, you'll notice that pan discoloration is a pretty common thing. Um, you know, sometimes those pans that were shiny and beautiful just weren't being used very much. So if you're cooking a lot, like if you're cooking every day, um, a lot of those pans are gonna have just a little bit of a change over time. Not that you can't bring them back to life. Um, Lily says, I just bought a bunch of kale at the market and decided to de dehydrate half of it. The taste is pretty bland and neutral. Any suggestions on how to use it in cooking? Um, well, gosh, Lily, when I dehydrate kale, I always apply uh, a seasoning or a flavoring scheme to it because I just want to take that dried kale and just eat it like a chip or a snack. So typically when I um, get kale from the market and I want to use it in a dehydration type scenario, I'll take it, I may add um, just a tiny bit of maple, maybe some miso, it could be a soy sauce, an apple cider vinegar. I could put uh, dehydrated garlic and onion and chili flake on it. Any number of things, any kind of flavors you want to use. So, um, but essentially I'll just coat those leaves with just a little bit of a seasoning. You know, it could be some dried um, spices. It could be some other umami rich uh, ingredient, like I said, miso or soy or some other thing. Sometimes a little bit of acid is also nice. And then, you know, not too much, again, because you're trying to dry these out. You don't want to add too much liquid, but just enough to kind of coat these things. Some people like, you know, like uh, different types of coatings. You can put sesame seeds, uh, nutritional yeast. All those things can also help, and you know, adding some crunch and some texture. But that's typically the way that I would use it, um, just from a dehydrated point of view. Otherwise, it is just like a, a dried kale leaf, right? Just, probably tastes pretty good, but it's not gonna have a whole lot of excitement. Um, so maybe just give it a try next time, Lily, and see what those um, kind of kale chips look like for you. Um, those work really well in a dehydrator at a low temperature. If you don't have a dehydrator, um, what I recommend is putting your oven on to like the warm setting, which is usually like a 175. And, you know, putting them in there maybe kind of <laughs> manipulating it a bit if it's getting too hot, opening up the oven door. If you can have a convection fan, move the air around, that also helps. Um, any combination of things, then just at some point, just turn the oven off and let it just kind of be warm and dehydrate those, those kale chips. You don't wanna to go too hot because you don't wanna like scorch or burn uh, the kale. Uh, when a recipe calls for two cups of nuts soaked overnight, do you measure the nuts before or after soaking? Typically, you're going to measure those nuts dry, and then you're going to just add whatever soaking liquid, and those are going to swell. And you'll likely have probably closer to two and a half, maybe even three cups um, in the case of like soaking almonds or something like that afterwards. So if it calls for two cups, I would just start with that. It's going to give you a pretty good approximation. If you find that in your recipe it's too much, you might go back and just make a note and say, hey, two cups of dry, a little bit too much. Next time I make it, I'm gonna do a cup and a half or a cup and two thirds or whatever. And that way you know um, the next time you make it, you have the proper quantity. Uh, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't sweat it. I would just start with two cups and then uh, 
just kind of see how it works. Uh, I'm a vegan home cook chef and I'm enrolled. Um, do you have any recommendations on vegan meat options that are 4% uh, or less uh, fat grams and low sodium? Uh, Lisa, I'm not you know too up on the wide array of plant-based meat alternatives right now. Um, I've certainly tried many of them. I just don't know, you know, offhand which of those brands are going to fit that requirement that you have for fat and the sodium requirement. I do know that a lot of the major brands are not trying to be low fat or low sodium. They're not part of the value proposition for people. They're really trying to create, in many cases, something that that mimics, um, you know, a, a product that you'd see at a supermarket, fast food, or quick service type restaurant, or something that really, as a stand-in for some of these um, otherwise processed foods. Um, I'm sure there are people making, you know, lower fat, lower sodium alternatives. I'm just not as tuned in to um, some of those commercially made products. Now, if you were looking to make your own vegan meats, right, you could do any number of things depending on what you wanted to use as a base. So, you know, old school from the 70s, you'd use something like textured vegetable protein, you grind it with some you know, roasted cauliflower and maybe some toasted walnuts and that could be, you know, ground up together and be a really unique, you know, soy plus veggie plus nut kind of ground meat option. Uh, you can also just make, you know, lentils. You could just take like red lentils or other sorts of lentils and give them a mash and that can be a stand-in in like a lentil bolognese. And some people find that little bit of a lentil bite to be, you know, close enough to like little bits and pieces of ground meat, let's say, within like a bolognese or a tomato sauce. Uh, so it really depends on what, what it is you're trying to do uh, with these meat alternative options, how you see it in the final product and so on. Um, but you know, I'm sure if you were to do a search uh, or even just do kind of an analysis, a survey of some of the packaged products available, uh, you might number one quickly see that a lot of them are not low fat or low sodium, but you might find those brands that are giving more of that brand promise around, you know, plant-based, but also not high fat, low, you know, high sodium type of thing. Uh, I'm sure someone's out there doing it for sure. Uh, Lisa also says, do you have any recommendations for salad dressings that are uh, free of sugar and low sodium? Um, yeah, I would make your own, Lisa. So within our, our Ruby world, um, whether it's uh, programs through Forks Over Knives or Plant-Based Professional or other programs that we have, um, there are lots and lots of salad dressing, um, vinaigrette, other options that would have no sugar and as much or as little sodium as you wanted to add, right, depending on what the ingredient set was. So, um, you know, feel free to dig into the Ruby website. Uh, you can do some free, uh, you know, searches within the recipe area um, and just see what you find. A lot of them are going to be, you know, kind of creamy dressings based on nuts or seeds or tahini or white beans. Some are going to be like thinner dressings based on like oil and vinegar, depending on your disposition. Uh, but there's going to be a lot of options if you're looking for something um, without sugar and with a low sodium content.
Uh, next question from Anita. Do you have any suggestions on modifying or dressing recipe that is just balsamic vinegar, garlic, and olive oil? What is a good substitute for the oil in this situation? So, um, you know, in this type of situation, if you're gonna uh, omit the oil, what I would suggest is really finding some other ingredients to bolster and create some of that emulsion sense of creaminess within this type of a recipe. So you could do something like um, balsamic vinegar. In this case, get the best vinegar you can because this flavor is gonna carry the recipe. So it's gonna be a chance to let that balsamic flavor kind of be the star. So in this example, I would recommend you know getting a quality balsamic vinegar. I would also, instead of just using like raw garlic, I'd probably double up on the garlic in the recipe, but I would roast it. So take a whole head of garlic, um, you know, wrap it in foil or parchment, and then you can roast that in the oven until it's really, really soft and almost creamy. Pop it out of those, um, you know, the, the, the garlic cloves um, out of the skins, and that roasted softness and also the extra amount of garlic is gonna be fantastic. So I would do balsamic, a little bit of white bean cooked, like just canned white beans or cooked white beans, probably just a few ounces, garlic, and then whatever aromatic herbs you wanted to add to that. You could bolster also with a little bit of tomato product, either fresh tomato or some tomato paste. That's gonna add some umami and some depth. Um, and then whatever else you want to kind of give that characteristic sweetness that that balsamic has. Sometimes people might bump that up with a tiny bit of maple syrup or a little bit of date paste or something like that. But balsamic definitely does well with a little bit of an extra sweet pairing in some cases. But take the oil out, create that mouthfeel by having really nicely cooked white beans blended thoroughly with your balsamic. Um, thin it out with a little bit of water if you need to. Uh, you might even thin it out with a tiny bit of vegetable stock if you want some additional umami. But you wanna get that dressing so it's got nice adherence so that when you put it on a salad, it's like sticking to all those leaves without being you know, gloopy or gloppy or too, or too heavy. Uh, this is an odd question. Is there a way to cook or roast corn on a cob in a no oil uh, cooking pan technique or something like that? I'm in an apartment, don't have an outdoor facility, but love to have the roasted flavor. So really good question here, Cynthia. So I would do this. Um, if you're in an indoor apartment and don't have an outdoor space um, and you wanna create that kind of roasted or like charred corn, um, I would take the corn, if you just got, you know, corn in a bag, frozen corn, I would take that corn, I would rinse it and make sure it was dry on a sheet pan. This is a time you don't want to use parchment because I'm about to put this pan under a broiler and parchment paper and broilers don't go together. But you just put it into a, a, a pan. You could put down a piece of foil if you like or just a straight pan. Put your corn on it and put it under the broiler. and that. A top level hot you know pre-roasted broiler that broiler is going to basically create a lot of radiant heat from above and what do you what it'll do after about two or three minutes you want to watch it because it goes from being like beautiful golden brown to like not golden brown and charred uh, pretty quickly but you want to watch that pan and see it's getting a little bit bubbly a little bit toasty you'll see the color change 
Um, it'll work on frozen corn, but I've only really done it on fresh corn off the cob. So take it off the cob, put it on your sheet pan, put it in the broiler, two, three, four minutes, pull it out. You should get some nice coloration on that. Uh, probably your best option. The, the only other way I could really think of doing that would be to have it in a hot pan and then just something to kind of weight it down a little bit so you get that like contact, so you get enough of a, of a cook where you might get some a little bit of color on it. But otherwise, I think the, the broiler is gonna be your best, your best bet. Hi, Chef Ken, I signed up for the intro pastry and baking course. I've always wanted to do it. I'm leaving for a month in Paris. Classes at Le Cordon Bleu and Escoffier probably won't get through the material in four months. Will I get a certificate? Um, so Aruna, if you um, are not able to get through the material, you will not be um, awarded a certificate. If you need more time to do the program, my recommendation would be to send an email to our support team and let them know your situation. And we can think about maybe putting your program on pause or just figuring out a way to give you some extra time so that you don't have to worry about um, the time while you're in Paris. You should definitely use that time to enjoy yourself uh, and not be worried so much about the, the Ruby program. But certainly email us to let us know um, to get the certificate, you have to complete the program. That's just sort of the, the basic rules of that, uh, just to keep the academic integrity and out of fairness for all the other students who are, who are participating. Uh, another question here uh, from Dr. KK. Thank you for answering my other question. One more. Would you teach us uh, how to make your mother's whole wheat pita bread? <laughs> Love those moms. Um, you know, I, I could ask her for the recipe. It's something that she's been doing so long that she just does it kind of by sight. Um, and her big thing is she's really interested in different types of heirloom whole wheat flours. So that's kind of her thing is she'll um, you know, really seek out unusual heirloom flowers that are being you know, ground fresh on a daily or weekly basis. And she'll use a lot of these unusual flowers, whether it's a wheat flour or a rye flour, uh, to make some of these different pita breads. Uh, but it's a standard pita. She makes it just in her home oven. Um, the key is really just nice amount of hydration, plenty of water and super hot oven. So when you put that pita down, you get that kind of characteristic puff and that your pita is gonna have really that nice division where there's two sides, one being slightly thicker than the other, um, but just that kind of amazing, amazing texture. So uh, it's just one of those things I've been eating for so long, I must take it for granted that it's, uh, that it's available to me, but they are, they are fantastic. Um, and just, uh, again, really, really easy. Just uh, yeast and uh, flour and water. And then if you wanna add a little bit of salt, which will change your yeast response just a little bit, you can add salt or it can just be that simple with the yeast, flour, water. And one more question here. What is the best way to roast vegetables without coating them in oil? So this is a standard technique, Mary, that we teach within many of our programs, uh, including the Forks Over Knives program. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to do this. It really depends on the vegetables that you're roasting and the flavors that you want on those vegetables. Um, typically, when I'm roasting vegetables without oil, I'm gonna cut my vegetables 
a little bit smaller than typical with you know with oil roasting because I don't want them to dry out too much before they you know kind of finish cooking so I'll typically roast them a little bit hotter a little bit faster and a little bit smaller dice but in terms of coating them with something that's not oil there's really any number of things that I'll use uh, everything from just a splash of you know veggie stock with some uh, dried you know spices it could be just a little bit of uh, dehydrated onion or some cumin powder or some paprika uh, it could be a smoked chili pepper it could be um, just as, as simple as just a little bit of black pepper or a little bit of salt the idea here is you want to create something to help with the adherence on the exterior part of the vegetables but but not something that in the hot oven is going to burn and smoke and create off flavors so typically what I'll do when I'm roasting without oil is I'll apply some uh, flavoring you know, in advance so that while I'm cooking I'm getting some development of flavor and then I'm monitoring a nice hot oven, not crowding the pan, even moving things on the pan, you know, kind of scooping and rearranging to make sure I'm getting good coverage. But then the second thing I do is I'll typically apply a second round of flavoring right when that vegetable is done and coming off the sheet pan. So an example here would be like, great, I've got some roasted sweet potatoes that I roasted very simply with maybe just a tiny bit of salt and pepper, and I'm gonna pull them off and I'm gonna to toss in some chopped spinach leaves and some chili peppers and you know some other herbs and just be like done and be like, great that will sort of wilt and heat and that makes a beautiful side dish that um, it's just going to be something that looks really attractive but it's a secondary flavor that I'm building um, after I've already established that primary flavor and then after um, you know I kind of decide where, where my flavor is going to go so it's gonna look really delicious, even just with some herbs. But if you add things like some chopped up greens, again, kale, spinach, uh, whatever it might be, um, that's also gonna be really, really great. Wonderful, well, I think that's uh, all we have for today. Um, hopefully you got some great action behind us. <laughs> Uh, watching the the team here at Ruby work away uh, on this. Just wanted again thank Patrick. It's great to be in the same room doing this. This is pretty fun. And thanks to all of you students out there. Really appreciate your questions. Um, really excited to have you uh, with us. And uh, again, if we couldn't answer your question, please reach out to our team. So until next time, have a great day and happy cooking. Take care.